Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine, and I'm joined now by a whole host of people, including JJ Bull the Bullet. Hello. How are you? Amazing. You were the amazing. Yes. Uh, Sebastian Stafford Bloor, in person, in the blood. Right here. Hello, Joe. Hello. And of course, Jonathan Dog McKenzie. Hi, John. Hello. Yes, indeed. Uh, we're all joined uh, by Steve Hankles remotely. I believe Steve can say hi from his home in Cambridgeshire. Hello. Look at that lampshade. Anyway, uh, we've got so much to talk about today on the TIFO Football Podcast. We're going to start by discussing the very exciting game between Liverpool and Manchester City, a little bit of Arsenal. Uh, we're going to be joined by a special guest to discuss uh, AFC Bournemouth, which is exciting. And then it's on to the continent, El Clasico, Union Berlin, and other uh, countries on the continent before returning back to the Premier League to uh, type a few loose ends. And if we've got time, maybe head to France, back to the continent. It seems a weird way of going around the journey. It's kind of it's inefficient. Back and forth. It's a bit like what you yeah, do, Seb, on a kind of weirdly month- monthly basis. Yeah. Some Serie A. And maybe there's a couple of, I don't know, we might plug a few things at the end as well. Maybe we would do that. Speaking of plugs, you should buy the Tifo football book. Yeah. Yeah, that's the really that, now that's the main plug. Yeah. I like. Do you yeah. like how that superseded the yeah. subscribe to I the mean, Atlantic? Yeah, I mean, if you like stuff or if you like journeying to the continent, you know, it'd be a good companion as you journey to the continent. Yeah, the TFO book. It would, wouldn't it? Yeah, it yeah. would. Yeah, uh, always good to have a, a companion on the continent. Uh, our special guest has joined a little early, so let's ignore him. And uh, but if you don't want to ignore him, you should subscribe to the Athletic. That's theathletic.com forward slash tifo. Theathletic.com forward slash tifo, where you can read him every day. <laughs> You don't know who he is. You'll find out later, and the plug will will work as a kind of episode-long arc. Does that work structurally, JJ? You weren't listening, were you? <laughs> for about two minutes, sorry. In which case, let's begin the podcast. Right. Let's begin with, uh, what are we beginning with? Oh, Liverpool won. Nil Manchester City. Uh, JJ, uh, this was a very exciting... I enjoyed this game. Did you? I did enjoy it. I thought for the most of the game, it was uh, nil-nil, wasn't it? For 76 minutes of the game. Indeed, you were it was, right, it, it was. was nil-nil. Nil-nil. Many games are. <laughs> and even then, a man such as myself who normally enjoys goals and splendour, I was enjoying this game. Mmm... Uh, a splendor made me think of the uh, the sugary thing, the pretend sugar. Yeah, but it's yeah. American, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> Get it here. This game was so fun. Yeah, it was really fun to watch. A very exciting nil nil. Um, yeah, I don't know. It was really interesting tactically as well. When you break it down, we did a video on it on Tifo IRL, which you can see um, on the internet. Yeah, it's lots yeah. Of on the internet. Uh, loads of things that were really interesting. I think you, some of the things you pointed out were that you saw Bernardo Silva dropping deep with Gundogan and swapping around. Like, did they do that before? They do it all the time. Like, Bernardo is amazing at dropping deep. He sometimes you think of him as an attacking player, like a right winger sometimes coming onto his left, and he's brilliant there. But he tends to play very much in the middle of the pitch in the last couple of seasons, dropping deep to help in build up phases. He is one of the best players. That's uh, too superlative, but one of the best players I've seen. Like able to just control the ball in tight spaces and go around people he's mm. incredible at carrying it under tight situations quite undervalued as a skill isn't it honestly if he was at, if he was at Barcelona if they had managed to get him in the summer he'd, he'd think he was one of the best players in the world. I'm just I'm going too nuts sure he, I don't I, think you are I think that's okay I think he's brilliant I Bernard think he's Silva. brilliant too um, and so he, like doing that is really useful for the way City want to play uh, but if you look at the average positions I mean, actually, or just watch the game you see that Bernardo Silva was often Although he was playing deep to help a build-up and was sometimes on the right and sometimes on the left, he was mostly helping to double up with Phil Foden on that left side of City's attack. So it's almost as if, although City knew that Liverpool would probably play that 4-2-3-1 that they've changed to him, so they could easily beat them with a three in midfield. Well, Firmino drops in to make it a three. They could flood that bit. Instead, they were flooding the wide areas to try and dominate them there. 
is stopping them being able to play. And we know that lots of teams focus on Liverpool's right side recently because it's been weak. It just has. With Alexander-Arnold, they're really exposed. With Salah not helping them out on the right side. Harvey Elliott's been playing right side midfield, not helping out as much as you want. So lots of reasons for Alexander-Arnold struggling a little bit of that. But he's not in the team. And Milner, I thought, was excellent at right back. He was very good, wasn't he? It's, it's, it was. Um, I suppose he's doing something very different to what Alexander Arnold does. By the way, yeah. I mean we are going to come on to talk about Liverpool, who, who who won the game. But I think this is is an interesting point to observe. I think it would be easy to watch that game and go, "Oh, James Milner's a better right back than Alexander Arnold. He's just doing a completely <laughs> different thing." Yeah, he's right? not. Like, and I think I tried to. I said this in my Tifo IRL video is that remember like, Alexander Arnold is a really special player. I think Gary Neville did a really good bit on this at um, Monday Night Football the other week. If anyone's not seen it, it was really good. He's an incredibly talented player. He's a really attacking player. And when Liverpool are in the ascendancy, to quote Pro Evo commentary, they push right up the pitch. He can then create in those really difficult areas to create from, whether it's deep and wide or like in this middle section or half space, anything like that. Brilliant player. He can defend. We know that. He just sometimes get caught in the wrong position as you would when it's not your natural skill set. But like you take all the good because the bad's so rare. But teams are just finding a way to get past Liverpool because they're weak all over the place at the moment. Yeah. There's, just, there's loads of structural issues there. Um, Milner is, if you're trying to run towards a right back, would you rather try and run past James Milner, who's going to get stuck in? Yeah. Or Alexander-Arnold, who will try and win it cleanly with good technique? <laughs> the way I like to think about this, do you remember the game? I don't know if, if it's uh, presumably elsewhere it's called something different, but at school they called it British Bulldog. Oh, yes. yeah. Where <laughs> it would, and for people who don't know what that is, you would have a, you know, you'd have like a, a, a pitch. Uh, everyone would be on one side of it. There'd be a few people in the middle. Uh, and and the, the task would be for the people on the side to run all the way across without being touched or caught. How did you uh, uh, fare in British Bulldog? I was Bulldogs pretty good. You, I was, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, smash I'm a, him out the way. <laughs> I'm a nippy young, nippy young Line. Well, exactly. Indeed, who, who on earth wants to try and stop yeah. me? Well, yeah. I think James. Like we drive a lorry down the street me. in Grand Theft Auto, and yeah, it just is. flies off. That's you. what it's like when I walk <laughs> down the pavement. Yeah. Yeah. People just get out of my way. Like an extreme version of the Verve video. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, Mo Salah. I, 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 you know, I, I think he was better in this game than I, I've seen him for such a long time. He was so, he was exhilarating. Well, to I'll watch. tell you why that is. So yeah, please do. For this season, the, the change in structure for Liverpool means that Salah is very much in the wide right. And what they do, I've been reading Pep Linders' book, he's the assistant manager at Liverpool, and they keep talking about these flexible triangles in the, on the right and the left. They always play wide triangles. And the triangles between Alexander Arnold, the right side of midfielder, normally Henderson, Harvey L at the moment, and Mo Salah. And they would swap around. That's when you get those rotations, positional rotations, where uh, Alexander-Arnold might end up central and uh, Salah stays wide. And they swap around, basically. It's all, as long as they have those positions in the final third filled, it's fine. But as teams focus on that left side, they've kept Alexander-Arnold deeper this season. So he's not quite as connected to Salah as he once was. They're not covering the spaces that he's left before as well. And Salah's been staying really wide right. And his touches, if you go through touch maps of the last few games this season, he's very much tied to that right-hand side as a winger. So you're trying to support other players like Darwin Nunez or Firmino um, in the middle of the pitch or Jota, something like that. And in this game, they play him through the middle. So it's like a 4-4-2 or a 4-2-3 one. It's very much the same, interchangeable. But because he's playing in the, the through the middle, he takes up a sort of right half-space position. Like if you watch Ronaldo play for Man United, he's a central striker, but really he's a left half-space kind of striker because he plays just to the left of that and likes to be out of the game Salah was doing uh, similar things to what Pete Ronaldo might have done but he's playing on the right half space he's dropping deep stick players out of the game then sprinting him behind because he's really quick he had space to run into because of the way that he lined up at set pieces especially they had control of the game mostly but when they went forward with set pieces they were open and that's when Liverpool scored it's a long ball to talk to Salah and the one time they really exposed who, by the way, can I say, watching him against Ruben Diaz, who's a big lump of a guy, yeah. you know, he pushed him around. He's so I, I strong thought, like, that, uh, yeah. Ruben Diaz had the kind of game I was saying to Seb before, where if like one of us had had that game in a five-a-side or, you know, Sunday League or whatever, and we were pushed around by a smaller person, that's the kind of game where you get made fun of by your teammates afterwards for being... Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it yeah, it, it yeah, felt yeah. like yeah. that, didn't it? He's, well, he's just... Got, Salah's really technically good, but also he's... His centre of balance, sorry, is that the word? Centre of balance? Centre of gravity. Centre of yeah. gravity, yeah. yeah. Like he's really well balanced. That's why he's able to do that dribbling like Messi does, where he goes through people and it seems like he's just yeah. running like I would fall over. You can't push him over. Because <laughs> he's really strong, yeah. That's the thing. It's uh he, yeah, he's got really good core strength. That's one of the big things. That's the thing Gordon Strachan was obsessed with actually. I remember him talking about core strength. Is that when he went well. on that rant about genetics and, and why that was I, I think it was part of it, but he yeah. was talking about how um like that's the thing you need is core strength. You don't have to be like so strong you can barge people out the way like you're a lorry in Grand Theft Auto. Mm. But if you're such that you're so strong that people then bounce off, you don't expect it because you don't look it. 
Yeah, uh, that's really useful. Well, Steve Hankey makes that makes the point in the in the podcast plan here that uh, you know actually the post match interview was with Salah and uh, Virgil Van Dijk. I was going to make a comment about that as an aside, which was to say that they really played down like how how big a win it was. I think which I understand why. But uh, Steve Hankey makes the point like you know if Virgil Van Dijk is roughly the same height as uh, as Ruben Diaz, you can see the size yeah. difference when Salah yeah, yeah. stands next to Van Dijk, and that yeah. that's what he's dealing with on a. Uh, on a you know ninety minute basis, right? Did you watch this game, John? I did. Can I ask you a question then? Um, Kevin De Bruyne was positioned on the left a lot in this game, and I haven't. I don't think I've really seen that before. He was Normally, right. you, touches were right. Yeah, yeah. But towards the end of the game, he was like he was pr- like dominant on the left wing, which is which is why I ask because uh, I've never seen that before. Do you know why? I'm not sure. I think part of the confusion about the way that. Man City were setting up was because we often expect to see Cancelo on the left-hand side. Mm. Obviously, Cancelo's out over on the right for this game. And that meant that I think a lot of the, uh, Man City's attacking patterns look quite different. We often see them doing a lot of like overloading on the left-hand side to then get the ball to someone like Mares on the right, um, yeah. isolated. And I wonder whether or not that was just a last throw of the di- dice by Pep to try and get this this one going. But try and break it, through. Yeah, it was a r- really interesting game. What what I think, me- I mean, here's John McKenzie to talk about boring off-ball stuff. Sure. But, um, I like people, how you've People do say that, that a lot it, about you, yeah. 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 <laughs> is that true. your collective voice for people that are nasty? That's, the, that's, that's Hoi Palloy. Yeah, that's that uh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> that's really well done. You workshop that for quite a while, that, that voice. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I, I lie awake at night being like, oh, that John McKenzie. Yeah. yeah. Now we've had our fun, say the boring thing. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, I was quite surprised because Man City basically went man for man, mm. player for player, I should say, out of possession when Liverpool were building up from the back. And I think it worked pretty well for the first half. I think I mean, Liverpool barely created anything in the first half, but in the second half, it felt as though Liverpool went a lot more direct and if you actually look at an XG plot for the game in the second half, you see those big jumps where Salah had a few really good chances to score where he got one-on-one yeah. against Alisson, et cetera. And obviously towards the end, the, it, the game sort of opened out a little bit more. But mm. uh, it did, I did feel as though the going player for player, like it's quite, it's, it exposes you because you do end up with those 1v1 duels. And if they don't go well, you can be, you can be pulled apart. And yeah. obviously that's what happened for the goal was that Cancelo was left 1v1 with with Salah now I think you would obviously leave your fullback in those sorts of situations because it's straight from a set piece yeah but usually we talk a lot about rest defense and usually you would have a, a, a more robust rest defense structure I think in those situations but it, it literally meant that Allison could just find Salah Salah could roll Cancelo and then he was through on goal mm. um, so it seemed like a really high risk uh, strategy to me but it, this game actually felt and I'm going to get panned for this but I'm going to say it anyway okay yes. it, felt, it felt like the first time I'd seen Liverpool Manchester City, where one of the teams had played underdog football. Right. I think in previous matches, it's been quite tetchy and close because they've both played very similar styles and they've kept it kept it pretty defensive. Whereas in this one, it did feel like Liverpool sat a little bit deeper, just absorbed the pressure and knew that they could hit on, on the break. And, and, and in the end, it worked out for, the, for uh, the better. Maybe a stylistic change at the top. Exciting. I mean, it, 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 listen, if that happens again, I would enjoy it because it certainly made the game... I can't think of another Liverpool-Man City game that was... As exciting as that, I know there was the two-two, all the four goals in the second half last season. But well, they were better matched in the past because they were both competing so high, and it, it has felt like they dropped off a little bit this year. Liverpool, so you can't play the same way. Also, they are shipping the same sort of goals. I mean, I've watched a lot of Liverpool recently, and they're shipping the same goals from the same place, the same problems they've had. So they're trying to lock that down in this game, but still offer an attacking threat. There were phases of play, like ten-minute phases, where City had about ninety-one percent possession. Yeah, when that just happens with City, they're going to control it. Um, it's weird when you look at any lineup. I've gone through like who scored and why scored everything. Um, everyone lists City as like a three, four, three or something like that. But it's it's not. It's just there's no formation. It's yeah. just lots of players in different places, and they only lost because of that really magical like, turn by Salah to yeah. to win it. I thought Joe Gomez was brilliant in this game. It wasn't he did anything different or his position differently. He just played much better. Like he got torn apart by Napoli. He was player of the match, wasn't it? I think. I think he got yeah. one. Yeah, he. Um, like against Napoli, he was he was bodied by Kavatskalia. I've said his name wrong. Kavatskalia. I love that guy. Um, Say it for us, John. Kavatskalia. Okay. Kavatskalia. And this game. You should remember immense. that because it sounds a bit like skeleton. And you like skeleton. <laughs> does he really like skeleton? Skele- I like skeletons a lot. Like yeah. skeleton? Say it again. Kavatskalia. Varek Skeleton. That does actually help. Yeah. <laughs> yeah a little bit <laughs> for you there. I just yeah. need skeletons everywhere. Yeah. Um, 
Well, let, let me ask you this then. Yes. Um, you know, th- this game was a 1-0. Yes. Another 1-0. Was it 1-0? Arsenal beat uh, Leeds 1-0. Yes, didn't they? Which leaves them now four points clear at the top of the table. Very exciting. I did see an Adam Crafton tweet uh, over the weekend that said, you know, with apologies to the rest of the league table, but watching the Liverpool-Manchester City game, it's clear to me that these are the two best teams in the country. Do you think that's a little unfair? Not to, I don't want anyone throwing shade at Adam Crafton. I think it's fair. But uh, do you think that's a little unfair on, on, on Arsenal this season, who have extended their lead by four points and are looking all the well for it? Well, I mean, I don't want to say anything because... Well, I'm going to say something, but uh, judging by my Twitter ads, I'm really well <laughs> beloved by many Arsenal fans. <laughs> yeah, sure. And so... Um, I think if you, I think Crafton did the same thing. He did a, a tweet where he's looking at the the. If you do the table by goal difference, <laughs> was it Crafton? Someone oh, else, Michael Cox. Was it Cox? See, I think that's that's Cox. Yeah, I think that's quite a good way of looking at it. I think, Arsenal, and I can tell you that Arsenal's goal difference is is plus fourteen. Manchester yeah. City's is plus twenty three. Tottenham's is plus twelve, and then everyone else is. Well, know, if you look at Man like, United, is Liverpool minus is two. quite high, but then Liverpool they did beat nine Bournemouth against Bournemouth, nine 0 yeah. which I think probably skews and that. their goal does, difference yeah. is nine. So outside yeah. of that game, they've <laughs> run they're, even. They're, yeah. they're can I offer a counterpoint to the to the, the Liverpool thing? Like, I, yes, it was the, the best I've seen Liverpool play in ages. But you get this within the confines of a rivalry, and within the um, within the. Uh, I, the I, what of, I've done is I've put you off there. But what yeah. I was indicating by touching my ear was: would you would you speak more loudly, please, sir? Oh, okay. I'd but love let, to hear more of your. Let's let's do a let's do a different gesture for that. What, like chest out? No, no, no. More of a kind of that, or that. A, or maybe that. Well, I thought if I did this, you might stand. No, up. no, no, I don't no. Want you to that, stand that's up. it. Sit more. What sit, I want you to do is speak at the level that you're speaking when I'm speaking over you. Okay, because that, when I'm that meant it. You know, and go. If this oh, makes okay. it into the edit, it's a very good insight into how Joe and Seb talk often on this podcast. So usually within the confines of a rivalry like this, when a game has decided titles, Champions Leagues, and other competitions on a regular basis. It has its own microclimate. So, and generally you can come into that even when you're off form, like a derby, and you can play sort of independently of the rest of your season performances. So John talked about underdog football earlier. And I think that's kind of a fair point because it's a, all of the conversation this year has been about Man City are unstoppable. What do you do with Haaland? Can't possibly be stopped. Liverpool are awful. End of cycle with Klopp. What are we going to do next? Bin off FSG. And so that creates the conditions for this kind of performance. Now, in a week's time, we may be, we may be talking about Liverpool's sort of resurgence and, yeah, maybe. But maybe signing not. off on that now ignores what we've learned about this kind of game in the past. That's right, because yeah. in the current context, the, the title challenge yeah. game is Arsenal-Man City, yeah. which is coming up fairly soon, I think. Oh, yeah. no, it was re- rescheduled, wasn't it? It was supposed to be on Wednesday, it supposed to be Wednesday. and it's, supposed it's, been, it's been postponed. Oh, yeah. that would have been a big week. Really would, It'll really be would. so good watching those two teams play, because Arteta's very... His, the structural things are very similar to Guardiola, and it makes sense having you know, managed under him and uh, be also being a La Masia graduate, all that sort of stuff. He'll come through the same school of thinking. And I think it's also interesting comparing Arsenal to Liverpool because they're at a similar stage in development that, well, not similar, but you know they had to develop under Klopp and they got better every year as Arsenal are doing under Arteta. And um, when Liverpool won the league, so this is my comparison I can do, is that when Liverpool won the league in 2019-20, they, they had to be, as Klopp has said many times, perfect to beat Man City because they are the best team. But Liverpool were the best team because they won the league and they overperformed in every like major metric, like your XGA, so your expected goals against... They uh, were 40 and they conceded 33 goals, overperforming defensively. And then they also overperformed in expected goals as well. So their expected was 71 and they scored 85. So it's an overperformance top end of the pitch, overperformance at the back end. That's how they won the league because you have to be better than like perfect to beat Manchester. Sure, yeah. That's how you do it. Now, Arsenal, is this sustainable? They are currently, their XGA, sorry, their XG, Expected goals for is 18.5. They've scored 24. They're overperforming at the top. That's good. And when you have momentum and confidence, you can ride that out. Yeah. Uh, expected goals against 9.9. They've exceeded 10. That's roughly about exactly where they should be. So that's good. Now, the thing is, when you, like, I've watched the highlights of the, of the Leeds game, not seen the whole thing. So I, I can't tell you exactly what happened with this. But to me, the stuff that Leeds were creating and the, some of the errors that Gabriel, who's made a couple of errors in the last couple of games I watched him play, 
it's the kind of thing where they need a bit of luck to get through this because otherwise it could fall apart and then you lose your confidence and your momentum and then it can yeah. derail a little bit. Well, indeed, any any title challenger needs a of luck course. to win. Of right? course, but the thing is, if they're getting through this, that's really good. That's it, what, it exactly means, that. Like, yeah. if, you're, if you're an Arsenal fan, you've watched this season, you've enjoyed the kind of the fluency of the attacking play and the goal scored and the kind of the flair elements and also some of the kind of the flair defending, some of the, the way in which Saliba defends or so far has done this season, isn't exactly back to the walls on it kind of stuff. Sure. This was Arsenal not playing well, Arsenal suffering under the weight of a pretty packed schedule. I mean, they had a difficult away game on Thursday night, which they which they won, but didn't play well in. And they got through this. So we, you see a kind of a, an examination of a different set of attributes, mm. which felt instructive. I felt, you know, yeah. like if I'm an Arsenal fan, I think I'm, you know, you, obviously you want to see 3-0 easy wins on the road because it's easier for your heart rate. But sure. at the same time, you feel a little bit more confident about you know, your cornerstone players and your resilience. This is the kind of win yep. that we see oh, no. cham- champions <laughs> win. Well, I, I, I don't know. It is. I mean, it is. They could, I'm not saying, they could I'm not saying they're going to win. I'm just saying... I would, can, that, I, can, I, can I rephrase all it? All I'm saying is that this kind of difficult away from home doesn't concede a goal and scrapes three points victory is the kind that we see from every Premier can, League can champion. I, can, I, can, I, can I rephrase just years. to something you that can. I'd be more happy with? This is like inevitably over the course of a 38-game season, you are not going to play well in games. And so as a result, you are going to have to have matches like this where you don't play well and you still get performances. It's not necessarily indicative of something, but it's a tool that you need to have on your on the Premier League road Yes. to winning I can, I can see John McKenzie sort of tweaking to speak <laughs> yeah. and we are going to move on to the next topic <laughs> so last, last thing please go you've, you've spoken enough but speak more you haven't spoken at all speak more come on um, I think in terms of we need to contextualise and the thing is that Leeds are an outlier he's always trying side. to make us contextualise no, no. I know but like I hate Leeds, context. Leeds are an outlier side right so yeah. they are playing in a style of uh, they're playing a style of football which is going to cause Arsenal a lot of problems mm. and Arsenal will move on next week and not play a team that's going to be aggressive, pressing, yeah. uh, and and trying to stop teams who are going to try and build up through them. So I think this is an outlier result or performance from Arsenal. And I also think that it's a, probably an outlier performance from Liverpool as well. So to say that Liverpool and City are the best team in the league off the basis of one performance in the same week that Arsenal are playing a team who are also having a bit of an outlier um, performance as you, well. Are you calling out Adam Crafton directly? On this podcast, does sound like it. Doesn't it? Sounds it? Like really it. does sound like it. I think friend yeah. of the podcast, obviously fantastic. I mean, less writer. so now. I mean, it's a, it's a weird, you know, sort of feud to start. But is that what you're doing? I respectfully disagree with Adam Crafton <laughs> because I think it, it's clear that like the best team, if you look at the numbers, the best team in the league, Man City, Arsenal, the second best team, quite comfortably. Right. Arsenal could win the league. Because you, you like the numbers aren't always indicative of what happens. Well, indeed, because but they, would have uh, they are lucky. top that's, of the league at the kind moment. Of like, that's kind of how it is. <laughs> and things when something magic happens in a season, like if Arsenal were to win the league, it would be amazing that they'd done it. It'd be so, it'd be really cool. And to make that happen, they need things to swing their way, like little luck. And that's why uh, football is amazing because sometimes these things do happen. And if they keep up the way they're playing, they will win lots of lots of games. They will lose a couple, but they need the luck to go their way. And that game against Leeds, I think, looks like thing, a thing to say. Actually, like an unfortunate uh, consequence of, of rescheduling is that the the Arsenal game that was due to take place on uh, the Wednesday just gone is now on the twenty sixth of April. Yeah, which means that both of their ties will be in the second half of the season. So for teams who are currently one and two, that is kind of Fun, it's it? kind of like the classico um, yeah. quintet of games from all those years ago. Yeah. You have it. That's brutal. The World anyway, Cup's going to make things go really weird yeah. as well. I remember, this is the first half of the season. Yeah. And then what's going to happen is that there's going to be a, like a break. They don't really get a proper preseason altogether. Yeah. Well, I mean, they probably will have. Like, we'll see how it happens in the World Cup. But then the second half will be a very different. It's sort of resetting and starting again. And it might yeah. just change. Like, mm. If they've got all the momentum, it could be that that derails them. Or they come back and they're resurgent and they're amazing again. It could yeah. be, yeah. Well, listen, let's move on now. Uh, and uh, I want to talk about AFC Bournemouth because AFC Bournemouth haven't, haven't lost a game in the Premier League since the 9-0 defeat that we referenced just before uh, against Liverpool. They're currently 10th uh, in the top half. And uh, we thought it was high time to talk about those cherries and to do that with us now is the Athletics Bournemouth reporter Ahmed Shubal. Hi Ahmed. Hey Joe, hey guys, how you doing? Good, thank you. How are you? Good, good. Just recovering from a cold, but other than that, all good, oh, dear. Okay. <laughs> well, let's snot our way through. Uh, I want to start with uh, with a who scored tweet that I see that you have retweeted Ahmed, yeah. which says uh, since Gary O'Neill took over as Bournemouth boss on a caretaker basis, uh, only Manchester City, Tottenham and Arsenal have claimed more points than the Cherries. So the first question I suppose is uh, why hasn't he been given the job permanently yet? Uh, that's a good question. I'd probably say it would have a lot to do with the fact that Bournemouth will probably have a new owner quite soon, a new ambitious owner. 
And um, my understanding is that Bournemouth would probably prefer to make an external appointment. Um, they're used to making sort of uh, interim or making interim managers permanent. They did it with Jonathan Woodgate a couple of seasons back. But that was only because they had Scott Parker, who was at Fulham at the time, in the waiting in the wings. And they knew that he would go to pot with Fulham at the end of the season. And then they could just sort of grab him at the end of the season. That's why Woodgate went towards the end. So I think this season they haven't really got a manager waiting in the wings. They've got a short list, which... They're constantly tweaking and, and um, the, the prospective owner Bill Foley is constantly being kept abreast of. But yeah, I think because O'Neill is doing a very good job, I, I think that must be stated, of course, but like he's still very new at this managerial thing. This is his first real sort of head coach role. He started out as a, as a member of Jonathan Woodgate's coaching staff, then stayed on with Scott Parker. So this is the first time he's actually the main man in the hot seat in the dugout. So uh, yeah, I think it might come a bit too soon for him, this Bournemouth role. Mm, okay, thank you. Uh, we'll come to the takeover in a second. Uh, but Seb, you had a conversation with Ahmed over the weekend, didn't you? Would you like to uh, talk about that and ask a question? Yeah, thanks, Joe. I Obviously, um, I've watched my fair bit of Bournemouth highlights, Ahmed, but what's actually changed within the defending, like it, within the detail of it, beyond it just being better? I think Bournemouth are a lot more sort of proactive in their defensive actions. They were quite reactive under Parker. They definitely sat back a lot. Bournemouth pressed, obviously, as one of the best teams in the championship last season. They uh, had a lot of the ball. And so when they did lose it, they counter-pressed. They were a heavy sort of pressing from the front team. And we've seen, we're, we're starting to see glimpses of that coming back. Actually, in the, in the Fulham game at the weekend, Bournemouth were pressing probably at their most intensely as they've seen them all season. We saw sort of Lewis Cook, who was one of the holding midfielders, further forward than Ryan Christie, who was uh, playing at left wing, or right wing rather, trying to steal the ball off Tom Kearney and, and Jaapalinia when they were playing out the back. So, yeah, I guess they're definitely a lot more intense in their defensive actions just when they're sort of pressing from the front, when they're trying to squeeze opponents sort of against a touchline, trying to win uh, win the ball in that way. But it's also quite difficult to compare Bournemouth's performances, particularly in, in a defensive perspective, when you're looking at Parker and O'Neill, because Parker had four games this season. Three of them were against Man City, Liverpool and Arsenal. And so, yeah, that, 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 those are quite restrictive games to, 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 to sort of play against. So a lot of the noises that came out of Bournemouth earlier this season, I mean, until Scott Parker departed the club, he talked very openly about not being able to compete and not being able to, to spend in the way that he might have wished to on returning to the Premier League. The, one of the differences seems to be that you no longer have a manager, at least from a media perspective, you no longer have a manager who's kind of inadvertently denigrating your abilities in public in front of in front of the press. Like, is that something to read into? Is that something that is a sort of evidence of growing self-belief or you know, more of a kind of a, a communal collegiate attitude within the squad? Yeah, I think that's definitely been a factor, probably something that's a bit difficult to ignore. Um, the players that I speak to on the record and off the record assert that while Parker said what he said in front of the media and maybe didn't paint the players in the best light or didn't really represent them in the way they might have liked to, he was when he was with them without the cameras involved, he was he was top with them and he, he, he sort of he maintained the level of professionalism that you would expect with them. So and they were quite surprised to hear that he was sacked. So yeah, you can read into that what you will, but O'Neill has kind of cleared up a lot of that mess uh, and immediately when he was interim, his first press conference asserted that he kind of disagreed with what Parker was saying in the sense that he, don't think this players are, he doesn't think this players are good enough. He definitely feels like these players are ready uh, and he's, 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 uh, you get the sense that he's almost proud to, to, to be, even as an interim, he knows that he's probably not going to get the job full time. But, you know, he, he, there's, there is that sort of collective spirit that he's fostered that you, that you touched on there, that he's definitely sort of had to sort of spruce back up again because going 9-0 down to Liverpool in the way that they did, hearing what your manager says, like player confidence has got to be rock bottom. That's got to be some of the most, some of the most damaging things you could say as a, as a manager, really. Yeah. And you can, you can see that in the way that Bournemouth handled the decision to sack him so quickly afterwards. So yeah, I, I think O'Neill's done a really good job there as well. Was that harsh with Parker? Because... He must not have been able to sh- to make his team play the way he wanted to at the start of the season. They beat Villa at the start of the season, right? That was first game, I think. Mm. And then what's it? Arsenal, City, and Liverpool. Mm. I mean, that's kind of hard. Yeah. Wasn't wasn't the ar- argument around that though that it was less about the results and it was more about what he was atmosphere saying, saying, yeah. saying like but, we can't win. But and, I mean, and the, you, but you can't done. against City and you like Liverpool no, no, doing sure. you nine 0 You would think. I mean, maybe did he change his approach an awful lot from what was working so well in the Championship for those games specifically? Was the Villa game? Did he play very much like the first? Oh, sorry, like last season in the Championship, and then had to change it for those three games to try and. To contain what they just couldn't do because they didn't have the players to do that 
and he knew that trying to press up high would be like really dangerous. Yeah, so last season they played a very attacking 4-3-3. The two attacking number eights, much like Manchester City, would uh, make a front five, so it would be like a 2-3-5 at times. They'd have a lot of the ball uh, counter-pressing in that way. A lot of similarities with Pep City. But this season, you know, completely different. A 5-3-2. Parker always wanted a, to go five at the back in a similar way to what he did with Fulham when they were promoted as well. And with that, he wanted more defenders. They, I think they started the season with just three centre-backs, two of which, Chris Meppham and James Hill, weren't really even starters in the championship and to rely on them in the Premier League was go- always going to be a bit of a a bit of a struggle so yeah and at, but at the same time you know that when he when when Parker made those comments after the Liverpool game that was not the first time he'd done that he did that in pre-season he did that um, a couple of times during pre-season actually and he was told my understanding is that he was told from the higher-ups like look we, we get that the situation isn't great we get the results aren't going your way and we get that it's difficult to go out in front of the cameras after results like that and have to justify and answer those hard questions, but we—it wasn't public knowledge at the time. But the club was under the club was going through a sale, and when your manager is saying that, um, you know, I don't know how long we're going to last in the Premier League for, and Bournemouth <laughs> are looking to cash in on their Premier League status when selling the club, that's not exactly what you want to be. Hit. That's not what we want to be hearing. So it's yeah, it's it's something he was definitely warned about, uh, but it's not really something that he felt like he could keep it probably felt like conditions that he felt were, were, were sort of beyond him. Um, but I guess Gary O'Neill's kind of, uh, yeah, proved him wrong in that, in that respect, hasn't he? He's, he's certainly a company man. John, what, what is it that you like about Bournemouth this season? Can I talk about what I don't like about Bournemouth? You, you can. You, you put, continue <laughs> to, 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 continue to, to be my miserable. authority, yeah. don't you? You yeah. continue. To, no, oh, here comes John McKenzie to say something boring. Oh. <laughs> here we go. Come on, John. You've been practicing your yeah. voice of the crowd's voice. Yeah. Man of the people. Yeah. Uh, no, my, my point is simply going to be, it looks as though since the 9-0 loss, Bournemouth have been wildly overperforming their numbers. Uh, like looking at the uh, looking at the expected goals for and against, it seems as though every result they've had since then has gone lucky for them. Um, so they've got draws when they should have lost, and they've won when they should have drawn, and things like that. He's trying to contextualise it. Again. So, Ahmed, does this ring true to you? <laughs> Fairly, yeah, I do get what you're saying. I've had a look at the um, the XG numbers, particularly in that Nottingham Forest game. Um, the the XG Bournemouth had to score three goals was nowhere near like you saw Philip Billings cracker from like 30 yards Dominic Solanke's overhead kick in a very congested box and I think Jaden Anthony's winner was probably the only clear-cut chance they created in that game so yeah I guess you could definitely say that and then I guess that probably goes back into the whole new manager bounce sort of thing players playing confidently taking chances that they probably wouldn't have done under Parker with the, the whole in the environment being a little bit quite miserable when he was manager there so yeah I I guess you can, that's probably one explanation as to why they're overperforming the numbers, but I wouldn't say they're lucky. In mm. fact, if you if you ask most Bournemouth fans, they'd say that quite a few VAR decisions have gone against them. So yeah, take that, take that, Joe. <laughs> Ahmed, um, I, I, over the weekend, I was reading your piece on Bill Foley, the um, prospective new owner of Bournemouth, and one of the things you mentioned was um, because of the way Bill Foley runs his sports franchises in the US, there's a bit of concern about things like obviously the kind of the rolling out of a, a more dynamic commercial model, but also the pricing of for fans in stadium. Cool. So relating to things like season ticket and food and that kind of stuff. Um, what's the kind of the expectation? I mean. Um, I'm not familiar with the kind of, um, what's the, the ice hockey team called? The Las Vegas Golden Black Knights. Super Knights. Yes, that's one. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's an interesting thing because it's that, it's that classic case of like a, a cultural clash um, between what works and what's tolerated in, in franchise culture um, versus what works in the Premier League. And one of the statistics you came up with was that for a, a supporter, his ice hockey arena was the, the fourth most expensive for fans in the United States. Have I got Ooh. that right? Yeah, yeah, that was um, by a study conducted by money.co.uk, I believe, yeah. Yeah. Um, what, what are the indications about what, what Bournemouth are likely to experience under his ownership? Well, the key thing, the key word, I guess, with Foley's involvement with Bournemouth is expansion and Bournemouth's commercial value or commercial imprint in terms of especially being a Premier League club is not big at all. Uh, that's mm. definitely something that Foley is looking to expand. 
Um, and the main way they'll want to do that is through sponsorships. The Golden Knights Foley's hockey team are very sponsorship heavy. If you look at their alcohol, uh, they've got like a, a beer sponsor, a gin sponsor, a vodka sponsor, uh, you know, uh, sort of a wine sponsor, Foley's own wine company. Foley yeah, he Wines. owns a wine company, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And there's probably a thinking that he'll probably get that involved with Bournemouth as well. There is an, an appetite from the new ownership to increase Bournemouth's commercial uh, footprint because that is an, an, uh, an avenue of revenue that they definitely need to boost particularly because maybe they could have a cherry sponsorship <laughs> do you, know do? you know you know that meme that you always see of the spider and they give the spider different drugs and it makes different sizes different <laughs> of webs no, well, no there's I this thing so like about, yeah yeah and you get like yeah there's a thing and there's a spider so like if it has weed it does a certain kind of thing if you give it speed or like cocaine or something these are different types of illegal drugs yeah so it can make different kinds of webs uh, so that's the joke yeah. so then what they could do with bournemouth is they can make them play different premier league games having consumed a bottle of gin yeah <laughs> that's good and God. see what the patterns look like i didn't know about that meme but a valuable contribution thank you jj <laughs> as a pickup point for the bit that we just cut out <laughs> Ahmed, i just want to ask you before you go about fulham because uh, you just watched them didn't you they're good yeah they are pretty good especially with that old uh, mitro up front mm. he's actually quite menacing like seeing him because it got to a point where bournemouth had like a back seven seeing how the seeing out the game and fulham were just pumping crosses into the box and seeing him like lurk from back post to back post across it it was almost like seeing a shark fin <laughs> out of the water yeah. it was very menacing <laughs> and you could see he's got the rounded shoulders thing hasn't he yeah it's, yeah, it's frightening I like it, it is, it I is like quite it. it was quite scary to watch um and but to be fair uh chris mepham who a lot of bournemouth fans wouldn't have thought had much of a chance of having a sustained role to play in this team as he has done he basically in particularly in the first half won every header he contested with Mitrovic but then mm. again Mitrovic question marks over whether he was fully match fit um, whether he was fully applying himself or maybe he was brought back a bit too early but no yeah that's sure. F- Fulham are Fulham are quite good yeah that's true well uh, kudos to Chris Mepham um, Joao Palinha you think he's a top lad, JJ. This boy's amazing. Good player. He's really good. Good player. I hadn't noticed him as much. And I was talking to, I think, a, a, a Tifo fan, actually, somewhere. I can't remember what his name was. Mm. Very nice guy. But he was saying how Sports Fulham and Paulinho is just the reason they're playing so well a lot of the time. This guy signed from Sporting. Um, Portuguese defensive midfielder. He's £20 million, I think. He used to play in the cent- a double midfield two in like a 3-4-3 three, three mm. for Sporting alongside Matias Nunes, the guy that will sign for a bunch of money. Sure, yeah. Two really good players. But this guy, so we're in the past, you know, we talked about how good like Wilfred Ndidi is because he finishes top in tackles and, and blocks and all these sorts of things. Well, Polina this season has made more tackles than any other player and more pressures than any other player in the league this season. Playing for this Fulham side, doing it really well. But he's also got great technique. He, he can switch to play with these beautiful long passes. And the way he reads the game, the reason his tackles are so high and his pressures are so high is because he sits slightly deeper when Fulham go forward, but then times his run to sneak in in front of people. There's loads of examples of him doing it this season where he sneaks in and steals the ball, and that's what keeps Fulham up the top end of the pitch so they can be slightly more attacking than they might otherwise be. Yeah. And they're playing quite well under Marco Silva. I think they're they're all right, Fulham, yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, there we go. That's the end of the first part. Let's all say thanks and goodbye to Ahmed. Bye, Ahmed Shubal. Bye. Thank you for joining thanks, us. Thanks, Ahmed. Thanks, guys. Take care. Hello, James Richardson here, presenter of The Totally Football Show. It's a show about football, and sometimes it's about life, and usually it's about an hour long. This Thursday, it's particularly about the midweek Premier League games, Ten Hag against Conte, South Coast Derby dust-up between uh, Bournemouth and Saints, and the story tradition of the all-West London-Brentford-Chelsea clash. I'll be asking dumb questions. Duncan Alexander, Carl Anker and Ahmed Schubel will have clever answers, and you can find all of that by searching for The Totally Football Show wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ah, what a lovely... Oh, what a lovely break that was. Delightful. Now to the continent, as we say. Real Madrid 3, 1 Barcelona. Goodness gracious me. Uh, Seb, what happened here? El Clasico number one of the season. Well, Real Madrid won, but they also won through an entirely predictable sequence of events. Mm. So one of the things coming off uh, their bad night against Inter Milan in the Champions League was a, well, uh, an increased vulnerability in defensive transition. And if you look at the first goal, um, if you were to, if you were a betting man, I think you would have seen that as the source of the first goal in this game. Just mm. because um, it's not so much what happens after a ball is turned over, it's all of the protections which Barcelona don't seem able to build into their attacking play. So before the weekend, they went back through Y Scouts to look at all of the attacking opportunities they've given up. And it's absolutely amazing how many chances begin with them taking attacking set pieces or having the ball in the attacking third and then misplacing a pass and allowing the opposition to progress up the field and one of the things that was interesting is that if you if you watch the goal the first goal they concede mm. forget the point at which tony cruz plays the ball because that's it's already too late look at the the absence of pressure the barcelona are applying on real madrid players when the ball is turned over also remember that the basis of so many of those good Barcelona teams in the past, like the, the great uh, Guardiola team, the great um, Tito Villanova team, they were hardworking sides. They were amazingly gifted and they had wonderful players, Iniesta, Messi, Xavi, et cetera, et cetera. But they worked extremely hard without the ball and they were incredibly well-disciplined without it too. Yeah. And that just doesn't exist. And so in that first goal and to a certain extent in the second, what you see once Real Madrid work the ball into attacking situation is panic, like players running half a leather back to try and cover position, reacting to things as they happen rather than relying on, on proper structures, making mistakes, but also allowing really bizarre things to happen. So it's a lack of intensity, isn't it? It sure is. It sure is. And I, I don't want to. I don't want to describe that as a lack of effort, but it's a lack of properly focused intensity, isn't it? It's like, hard you're to not, get it. Yeah, I, I it's totally It's really difficult. It's the kind of thing that you see, like Newcastle playing really well because they're yeah. really intense. When Liverpool were at their best, they were really intense. Arsenal are really intense just now. You like to try and win the ball back. Yeah. City are really intense. And it's like the, when they win the ball back, you, you're not getting a back off of them. That's no. the thing. And they just expand immediately and can do it. That's what Barcelona are I felt like... I want to come back to talk about the football element okay. of it, but I want to also address the kind of financial element yeah. of it, John, because um, now Barcelona are out of the Champions League. Uh, it is apparently imperative that they win La Liga um, as a result of the various levers. Uh, they, they the, could still stay in. They could. Yeah. If Inter don't beat Victoria Pilsen. Oh, is it not a done deal? They have to beat Bayern Munich as well. It's yeah, not it's, a done deal. It's very, very unlikely that they're going to qualify, but they need the chips to fall in their favor, basically. They need some chips. They also need to beat I Bayern need Munich. Some chips, which is, you know, mm. uh, some midday chips. But anyway, speaking of chips and levers. Oh, see, you just I, I could see your eyes, and this is a way for you to lose focus. Thinking about mayonnaise. Yeah, but we, we shouldn't what have this on, chips? you know. You know, chip shop chips, fish and chip shop chips. Yeah, probably the best. Yeah. Not loaded like with vinegar and, and the best chips. Ones. Yeah, you yeah, know. Yeah. I once went to uh, Bakewell, the town of Bakewell, yeah. where they do make the do they make tart, tarts. Bakewell tart yeah. comes yeah. from, which is actually very different to what we all think it is. Yeah, the original. Anyway, I won't go into that. But there's a pub opposite the co-op in Bakewell that does uh, delicious fish and chips. Uh, the fish comes stacked on top of the chips. The chips are just like the size of my arm. <laughs> They're so fat. They're all square, perfectly, perfectly. I feel like they must have found the largest baking potatoes possible. And, uh, you know, you know, when you see a tabletop made of wood, you think, how big was the tree? I don't know how wood is made. Uh, <laughs> it's like that when you see the chip and you think, what, is this the whole the potato? potato? Yeah. It, oh, my good Lord. It was what fantastic. What is it about Barcelona's financial situation which troubles you? Well, indeed, because as with the chips, there's a large <laughs> stake at hand. That doesn't work. Anyway, the point I'm making is it's very important that Barcelona do well on the football pitch this season as a result of things off the football pitch. John McKenzie, would you care to chips? I'm thinking about steak now. Yeah. That's definitely It's awful. a real problem, isn't it? We've got a, a, a negative circle here. Feels like forever since we've talked about the finances of Barcelona mm. when we went through a phase of talking about them every week. Yeah. Because it was the most interesting thing happening in football. But let's do it again. Let's do it again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we talked at the time about leveraging your future against results, basically. And the problem is, is that there's a there's a very possible world out there where where Barcelona perform exactly the same this season as they did last season, having spent all of this money that they didn't really have, and it means that they'll be in the same situation next summer with less things to leverage. Yeah. So, so. what 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 will happen? I mean, will would it be bad? <laughs> yeah. I mean, as as time, as time goes by, 
you obviously have to start that these debts will start being called in. I think one of the biggest yeah. issues is that they owe they, they owe their footballers a lot of money. Right. And as 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 each season goes on, the added revenue that you should be getting through being the best team in the world per yeah. their arguments yeah. is not going to come in and so you're you're spending like 40 50 million pounds on 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 a player mm. just to keep them at, at the club Troubling. and you're not seeing any any sort of upside from it so okay. yeah it's 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 not great and you were in a league with Real Madrid and this game I think was very much indicative of the problems of of spending big to try and beat Real because Barcelona has not worked a, for City or PSG no, exactly. And, and and Barcelona are playing that style of, of possessional, positional football mm. that over the course of a season will give you the best underlying numbers, but it doesn't always win you titles or yeah. Champions Leagues. You and that's build- the problem with, with Real. Real Madrid have come, they've scored three goals from, from very low chances. Barcelona have played fine, but they've still ended up losing. The second yeah. goal is a work of art. It's one of my favourite goals all season, I think, just in terms of the decisions made by Vinicius, the role by Chiumeni, and this is the Valverde like the fish from Valverde. It's yeah. like it's um, link playing the final third is lovely. If you if you didn't watch the game and you just wanted to know the story of it from a single thirty second period, just watch that because you see this perfectly choreographed attacking move with players who understand where their teammates are going to be, when to release the ball, and and where the spaces and the vulnerabilities are in their opponent versus a team who are expending a lot of energy and effort trying to cover space but they don't really understand where the threat is coming from next. So it's like it's reactive reactionary football. And it's it's just a beautifully worked goal. It's very very pure football um, from attacking sense. Can I build on something? The the finance thing, finance, the finance thing. I was reading Dermot Corrigan's article in the Athletics. In the Athletics, I can't speak <laughs> at all. It's like my tongue is too big. Mm. Um, in the Athletic this morning, and one of the lines that stuck with me was that um, Barcelona still owe money for the transfers of Philip Coutinho, Miralem Pjanic, and um, the goalkeeper uh, Neto. Neto. Yeah. Yeah, maybe Torres too, but it wasn't included in in Dermot's example. They still owe 100 million euros and that is due to be paid within the next seven months. That is mind-bending and very frightening. The big problem with them is that because they're trying to compete right now so they can build revenue so they can get back to They want a virtuous cycle, right? They they need to be big now because then in a few years it means they're going to have the ability to be able to compete. What they've done is sign players that have made them like if it was a FIFA rating, like one better. Like Marcus Alonso's not going to make you better. You know, he's not playing there. Kunde's a good signing, that's fair enough. Kessie is a good squad signing, stuff like that. But if you want to build and like really go for something in the future, you've got PK and Busquets who are gonna they're coming to the end of their careers. So you use them to like you would James Milner or um uh, Jordan Henderson Barry. maybe or, yeah, you, you know, use yeah. them so like you're, you're bringing through the next group of players and the next group of players they had Nico can play as that six he's gone on loan somewhere I think he's at Valencia yeah. Valencia we've got uh, Gavi and Pedri that's your two that's your midfield you build around and you accept that you're going to lose a little bit in the league maybe I think they're still were they top before this I'm not sure on goal difference yeah, yeah. They, they had a really good um, they were defending really well uh, if you look at the at the actual games but Ter Stegen is keeping them in games. What I'm trying to say is that they're overperforming defensively. Ter Stegen's keeping them in games. So if they're really trying to build something like the way we've seen teams at Liverpool and Man City transform and become something else, you don't have the same money. They want to be focusing on those players. Like you've got Rafinha they want to, brought in they want to take their time about it as well, right? It, like it, isn't that what Xavi as a coach, that, that, that it all makes sense. I think sense. Guardiola came in back in the day and made them amazing and then just, just had that core and made them really good. It yeah. was Ricard that was taking a lot of the players in to make them good in the first place, but... You know, Messi wasn't starting under Ricard every single week. As far as I remember, it was the, a bit of a change in in, in, in people because then Guardiola came in and away went Ronaldinho and they had the new uh, the new generation came through. And that's when it really became special because over time, and he started badly, but they got really good really quickly. So now the, the worry is that they don't think Xavi's maybe quite there. He's not got a very good record so far with them, but they are building. Trying to make the squad stronger now so they can compete right now, but actually it's the future. They're going to be better. And then what you've got now is uh, the Liga teams might go on strike because what's clearly... <laughs> what seems to be, I can see, uh, at the forefront of certain Spanish clubs' minds is having the Super League happen because that's the way you can compete financially with the Premier yeah. League because it's uh, just dead, it's like dominating everything. Mm. So you cannot compete. If you're trying to compete by signing Lewandowski up to lose 37 yeah. on a massive contract, it's dangerous. But this is the problem, though. Like You, you have the situation, firstly, where Barcelona acknowledged they still need to get a lot of players off their wage bill. Okay, So um, there was a quote from someone within the organisation, financial director of, of some kind, um, last week. He said that, um, okay, we expect this situation to be normalized by about 24, 25 that season. You're thinking, okay, that's cool because PK is this age and Busquets and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, Jordi Alba. But then you're also, 
what that calculation doesn't factor in is that Pedri, Gavi, Ansu Fati, these players will be coming up for renewal. Yeah. And um, they're coming up for renewal in a football world in which Barcelona no longer have financial primacy. No. And also, like, just like JJ's right. Like, if you if your energy is expended on advocating for a Super League because you no longer feel you're able to compete, I don't understand the tactic of then trying to compete in the transfer market with a very similar approach, which can be bettered by Paris Saint-Germain, Manchester yeah. City, arguably uh, Bayern Munich because they're a better run club, Chelsea, maybe even Arsenal at the moment. They seem to be sort of more financially stable. So Manchester United, like it, it's a... There's just a lot of contradictions in it. and well, um, I, I just want to yeah. um, uh, clue in listeners uh, to something you referred to just there, and that is that, um, as written by Dermot Corrigan, uh, La Liga clubs are exploring the possibility of strike action within 14 sides, uh, as well as league president Javier Tebas, due to meet Spain's uh, the sports minister on Monday to discuss the ongoing threat of the European Super League. So this is the context behind which you, you speak, Seb. Yeah, it's a... By acknowledging the need for a Super League, you are saying we no longer really have confidence on our ability to compete. Mm. So then you spend the summer trying to compete and digging a hole for yourself in two or three years when you're not quite out of your current hole. Like, we don't need to revisit kind of the, the, um, the politics and the kind of the issues with Barcelona's financial expenditure, but it just doesn't make sense. And it's no. also, you are settling for something which can never be quite as good as all the t those teams above you. You can have um, Robert Lewandowski, but you can only have him at the end of his career. You can maybe have a Pedro and a Gavi, but you have him at the beginning of their career before you potentially expose yourself again to kind of um, the financial might of those clubs that you're raging against with your Super League ideas. Mm. So it is this vicious circle, a virtuous circle of, you know, uh, advertising revenue and performance and winning and trophies that uh, Joanne Laporta imagines. It's a, it's a growing problem. Yeah. Um, and the need for a, a different approach, the need for a reliance on something other than the transfer market has never been more obvious, in my opinion. Well, in that in regard, uh, continuing with, uh, with, with Dermot's piece, he says, uh, you know, back when the Super League was originally announced, uh, both the governing PSOE party and the main opposition party in Spain were strongly against the idea. But in recent weeks, they've both removed their complaints about the Super League amid ongoing political lobbying regarding the project, which is also currently the subject of competition law case brought by the three rebel clubs that are presumably trying to say that, well, it, to stop this from happening is, is a breach of... Um, it's a monopoly. It's a breach of competitive... You know when... Um, you know that noise that gets made when someone um, like drags a nail down a blackboard and yeah. it's just... It's actually abhorrent. You can't listen to it. Yes. Like when someone says Super League, it has the same effect on me now. Like I can no longer listen. I can no longer engage with it like the kind of the Super wrangling your way for yeah it's like a, it's, it's it's just oh it, or it's like um you know a really really loud alarm that just uh it doesn't distract we <laughs> yes we do we also have really really loud drilling which is which is yeah. great um well, but the Super League is worse if, that, if it's given you that feeling then i wonder if it's it given the listener me, at home uh, the very same feeling yeah let's instead travel to a different area of the continent an area uh, which was never included in the super league it was it's germany yeah it's Germany. Anyway, uh, just a quick uh, top tip for anyone visiting Bakewell before we move to Germany. It was the uh, the Wheat Chief Pub and Pantry. Delicious pub and pantry. I uh, played a, a great game at the pub and pantry too. But I'll tell you more about that another time. Because Union Berlin 2, nil Borussia Dortmund, John McKenzie. Yeah, Union, march on. I mean, they've cemented their position at the top, at the top of the table they have they, yes. are, they are top of the table they are still there a win <laughs> kept them at the top of the table yes uh yeah no one goal difference to them no um, are they good then union berlin are playing a style of football which is working at the moment yeah i think they are maybe slightly overperforming their numbers but they are playing a style of football which is set to give them joy in the bundesliga it feels like a very political answer what's your what's your issue um, I don't necessarily have an issue with them, but I just think that, that what they're doing is they are playing very sort of reactive, counter-attacking football. Right. They have a couple of really on-form strikers right now. Is it a Leicester? Can I make a Leicester comparison or no? Is that not fair? Um, I mean, yeah, I think you can. They're playing a different style of football, but it's the same kind of thing where, we, you know, everything's going right for them like outside of their, their, their games are going well for them. Yeah. Uh, but also other teams around them are not doing too well. So we've seen okay. Bayern Munich haven't been the, the level that you might have expected in terms mm. of their results. Dortmund, obviously they, they've lost and, and now Dortmund have dropped like down to, to eighth in the league. So yeah. And that then was them dropping down to eighth. <laughs> <you know, laughs> <they're like>, 
thunderous thunder. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, Leipzig on. as well, and nowhere near the top no. of the table. And then sure. Leverkusen, who many of us, me included, thought would do okay this season, have been pretty dire. Uh, and do you think Bayern still have a chance of winning it? Oh yeah. Well, well they yeah. just beat uh, uh, Freiburg, who were second, I believe, going into this weekend. They 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 beat them five nil. I would rather not talk about this. Union, no. Union are interesting because I think, like, I, I agree, John. Like, they're they're, they're overperforming, and um, uh, Bayern Munich still look quite competitive this year, as always. Just four points behind. Just four points behind, and Bayern Munich. We've got a kind of a. It's like that's the same. Uh, I've interrupted you for no reason. That's Carry okay. On. That's okay. I can ride with the punches. Going there is difficult. Like uh, Union Berlin play in a, a, a really sort of classically English ground. It's very tight. It's very probably very intimidating for for opposition players to go there. There is. Uh, I, I got to go a couple of weeks ago, and it's an amazing atmosphere. Mm. There's a. Is that that's the one where you walk through the forest? you walk through the forest? Yes, mm. yes, yes. And it's um it's a brilliant place. I've just finished reading Kit Holden's book about Union Berlin, and uh, highly recommend it. Yeah. But it's um. What's it called? Uh, Scheisse, we're going up. Ah, yeah, nice. And it's great, but it's also it helps explain why all of a sudden there's kind of this moment in time situation there, which is alongside the kind of the practical reasons like the, the counter attack, those two forwards who play so well together, Becker and Jordan. There's an energy about Union Berlin, which is very unique in German football. And everyone, every week you go into the match days, you think, right, oh, this is when it ends. This is when they lose to Dortmund. And every week they do something to kind of, to confound that. And it's a great story. It's a great story. And I know what German football is. And I know I know about Bayern Munich's history in over the last 10 years, but it's uh, it's one of the best stories in European football there is at the moment. Um, mm. And so it's to be enjoyed. And also do read Kit's book because there are some amazing human stories and, and tales of, of their of Union's revival and their history and kind of their position in German society. It's a, it's a brilliant, brilliant thing to be happening. They're defending, which makes a yeah. difference. Like a lot of Bundesliga teams aren't too fussed about defending. And right. I think there's a reason for that because the gap between financial gap between the, the Bundesliga and the Zweite Bundesliga, the second division, is obviously not as big as, for example, in the Premier League. So in the Premier League, I think at the bottom half of the table, you get a lot of teams who will just sit deep and then look to counter because they would rather draw than, than lose, which yeah. doesn't happen so much in Germany. But Union, if you look at their underlying numbers, like in terms of expected goal difference, they are in the bottom half of the table. So it, it, I, I know it's miserable to talk about the numbers all the time, and I realise I've done that a lot in this episode. But Context. Um, they are they are very much overperforming. It's not just sure. it's not just like their second or third in the table in the table Tell according me. to the underlying numbers they what are, are the underlying numbers th th well so Bayern Munich expected goal difference of about 12 mm -hmm. clearly the best team in the league sure. um, Hoffenheim a second a joint second with with Leipzig so those two are on plus six and then at six below that is, is Union Berlin and Dortmund, Frankfurt, Köln, Gladbach and Freiburg and Werder Bremen are all ahead of them in terms of the underlying mm. numbers. So, mm. Well, listen, John McKenzie, I'll enjoy the real football while you enjoy the expected football. <laughs> I'll enjoy mm. being miserable. Mm. No, I, 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 simply, I simply say this because, I, you know, these things do have a funny way of, of yeah. sort of turning around at some point. Um, so we expect. You would, it would be unlikely that they would continue to perform at this at this sort of level. It's an enjoyable what, what a lot of situation. outcomes in football are the fun ones, aren't they? Yeah, no, of course. And, and it's great seeing what they're doing. And hopefully yeah. it will have a big impact on German football where teams realise actually you can get a huge amount of upside by by, by playing a sort of solid defensive yeah. base and, and, and attacking. That's there. the main thing. I hope it has a big impact on German football. Anyway, let's go, let's have a break now. And then when we come back, we'll abandon Germany and return to somewhere else. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yes, we're going for quite a long time. So let's, let's <laughs> speed through uh, what's coming up now. Manchester United nil, Newcastle United nil. Uh, there's not uh, tons to say about this, uh, JJ, but a brief aside, uh, given that you did make a video about this one. Yeah, I'll do it really quickly. So Anthony only has a left foot. I, I mean, he literally has two legs, so that's good, but he um, can only use his left. He can't pass the ball with his right. It's becoming a problem because all you've got to do is block him from... He's, he's coming backwards. He goes. The ball goes out to him on the right. 
and then he has to go backwards or he hooks the ball in, it's great. He's scoring goals, he's decent enough, he's a good player, but he's very much, he has one thing. Sure. And I think it's easy to stop him. Uh, Man United, very medium in this game, not really offering anything that's really that exciting. They're not pressing. So they're not scoring many goals, but they're not really, what their problem is is kind of chance creation. They had a couple of chances that he created by putting the ball in the box and Rashford had the header he almost scored later on and Ronaldo had an offside thing. But I think what they've got is that they're not creating chances through pressing, which is one good way to do it like the Liverpool Klopp idea is that you don't need a number 10 because you create your chances by turning people over in dangerous turning people over in dangerous situations and then exploit the space that's left in those and people being in transition or you can have really clever players that thread passes through they don't really have those Bruno Fernandes Bruno? Bruno? Bruno Fernandes will just like hit the ball forward whatever a lot of their chance creation is coming from wide and then they're not really just scoring goals that way but really Newcastle are they're genuinely good. They're playing like a total... Like, whereas Man United are a bunch of still individual players who are... You, you, can I put this into, into, into context? You would expect Manchester United to win this game based on the players that they have, If right? you look at the teams, so, they have the best players. Yeah. Man United do have the best players by far. So to, despite the fact that Newcastle may not have been on top the entire game, they can still be brilliant as a result of that. Yeah, if, yeah. if Man United played like how Newcastle did in this game, they would have won about 4-5-0 because they were so good. Like Newcastle were just really impressive. Play as a unit, defend as a unit, really intense. They do not let you go. They put the ball into the channel they chase it they put the ball over the top they chase it um, so it's not like they're playing long ball and just aiming it back and forward they are it's almost like gaining territories they put the ball into one bit and then they push up and they surround them and you can't get out and Man United are struggling to play out from the back they're just not very good at it still but I really like watching Newcastle at the moment if they have an injury to Callum Wilson that's going to be really bad because they're missing Isaac now until pro- probably at least three games Cup, maybe after yeah. the World Cup they think um, Alan St. Maximin keeps getting the same hamstring injury that's a problem so you can't play him a lot um, Almiron stepped up. They had Jacob Murphy playing uh, in this game as well. He's, he's okay. These are all right players, but it's the system and the the camaraderie, the team that's working really well at the moment. If yeah. they can keep that, it's the same thing we we're talking about earlier with uh, maybe with Arsenal. If they can keep that going. They can really do something special with it. They could okay. at the moment. The numbers say they could they could push the top four. They could do it. Okay, uh, let's move to France uh, now, where uh, PSG claimed three points in Le Classique. Huh? And Lyon are having a bad time as well, Seb. Yeah, Lyon are having a bad time. Uh, there was an amazing foul in the PSG um, Marseille I game. I should say, yeah, the Le, Le Classique is uh, it's, PSG's Marseille. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Lyon, um, Lyon on a separate note. A PSG uh, chance creation pretty good. Um, finally took one of the chances, but probably the moment of that game or the one that's made the biggest impression on social media is terrible tackle on Neymar it was just like a sort of it felt like a, a metaphor for everybody's frustration with PSG's superiority ah, right uh, yeah but they are yes well PSG superior they are looking competitive the 29 yes. points 11 games played uh, Serie A update as well uh, John uh, Napoli came back from a goal down to beat Bologna 3-2 that's a uh, fairly important for them in the in the league table staying top yep Napoli looking like the team to beat in Serie A at the moment and the Champions League for that matter mm. um, yeah. a good team mm. would you say uh, <laughs> they, they, <laughs> we talked about this last night <laughs> I'm not going to enter a long debate because we don't have time to talk about it but um, it's really going to undermine my point that I can't remember the name of the coach who I said was Luci- very very Luciano Spalletti Luciano Spalletti he's doing a fine job is he in, in 10 seconds or less Yes, really good job. He's got a really fun team uh, squad to work with as well. They're great fun to watch. Delightful. Really okay, well, also great fun to watch. Second place, Atalanta, uh, who beats Asuelo 2-1. I watched this game. It was a good game, actually. Was it? Uh, yeah. Tell me the most interesting thing Some about this game. bangers of oh, goals, actually. Bangers. Uh, the, um, the Sassuolo goal by Kyriokopoulos. Kyriokopoulos? Kyriokopoulos. Yeah. yeah, really, really nice goal. Uh, left-footed volley at the back post. Yeah, just clacked it in the top, and then Adamola Lookman's goal was lovely mm. as well. Uh, really well worked by by uh, Atalanta. So I'm just thinking about sausages because you said bangers and uh, chips sus- and uh, sausuolo sausages. Sausages. Speaking of Robbie Coltrane, yeah. Uh, oh, Robbie Coltrane. Uh, yeah. Yeah. What a guy! The guy from the, the, the is invents a dictionary in Blackadder, and it's yeah, sure yeah, this yeah, bits yeah. been a. I shall return enthusiastically. Yeah, yeah. Baldrick yeah, yeah, writes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 he puts aardvark in. I noticed not. He puts sausages in and <laughs> yeah. he's forgotten sausages. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he was fun. He was. was fun. He was very talented. Yeah. Nice guy as well, by all accounts. Yes. Which yeah. is the most important thing, I think. Okay. Well, there we go. This one's for you, Robbie Cotter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanking all the people here. Uh, JJ Bull the Bullet. 
Hello, yes. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> it's goodbye now. Jay-Jay. Sorry, yes. Yeah. I meant to say goodbye. There he goes. Uh, Sebastian Stafford Bloor. Bye bye, Jay Devine. Goodbye. Jonathan Dog McKenzie. Bye. 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 And of course, producer Jay- Jamie over there. I think you can see in the background of JJ's camera. J- uh, Jamie, swap yourself to JJ's camera. There and is. then JJ, just shift yourself out. There he is. <laughs> That's Look a lovely hand. Lovely Look hand. And Steve Hankey in his lampshade. Uh, thanks, Steve Hankels. You're welcome. Um, we'll be back uh, next. <sighs> Look at him interrupting me, answering the question. <laughs> You're a voiceless character on this show, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks to Ahmed Schubel as well. Um, and I should say, just before we go, uh, buy the TIFO book, subscribe to The Athletic. Also, listen to John's uh, podcast, which is second in this feed. If you're subscribed it's to really this feed, good. you'll get it. It's really if you're good. watching this on YouTube, do subscribe to the audio feed to listen to John's. Not all of them are released as videos. Who's who's coming out this week? We are talking about Bayern, actually, this oh. week with Justin Kraft. So he's a, a German Bayern expert. Lovely. So, yeah, lots, lots to... Interesting things to think about there. Exactly. Well, interesting. The, uh, the, those aren't the words I was trying to say. I was trying to say, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Yes. Okay. Uh, we'll be back next week. Well, oh, I won't be. Michael Bailey will be here next week. I'm going away. Uh, but I'll be back the week after. Until then, ta goodbye. When you said you're going away, it sounds like you're not coming back. <laughs> I'm going away. <laughs> you're just going ever. <laughs>